Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a conversation between Pastor Douglas Wilson and Dr. James White, entitled Christendom 2.0, Could It Work? This conversation is a part of a series called The Sweater Vest Dialogues. You can watch the full archive now on Canon Plus. As a, as a former Baptist yourself, okay, yeah. um, how do we avoid the conversion of of Christendom 2.0 into sacralism 2.0. Okay, so um, help a Baptist out is what you're saying. <laughs> so you just had to go there, didn't you? <laughs> I hope my son is gay. And I hope that Jesus forgives him just like he does the rest of us. Doug Wilson, Moscow minister and columnist with the Idahonian Daily News. The question that confronts us is, what does it mean in a disobedient culture to be prophetic? There be a place for same-sex couples? Uh, no, no marriage. Even though it's the law of the land in the United States? Uh, just like Roe used to be. We want to turn the world upside down, and you don't turn the world upside down by being nice. I believe that we are in, in this polytheistic, pluralistic moment, and the desperate need of the hour is for our Christian leadership to say, Jesus is Lord, and there is no other. Fear no man. Willkommen zum heutigen Stickwesterns Wiegesprech. Mein Name ist Jakobus Weiss und Pastor Doug Wilson gesellt sich zu mir. Guten Morgen, Doug. Wie geht's? I thought I was on a Christian program. <laughs> I thought this was... <laughs> you, just, you just made my point for me. That was exactly one of the points I was going to go for. Actually, what I was going to say was Jake forgot to give you the note that we were going to be doing this in German, right? Um... <laughs> Partly because as soon as we're done here, I'm actually teaching church history for the brethren in Frankfurt. You know Tobias Riemenschneider and uh, yeah. Peter Schilt there. Um, so I'll be doing that. But actually, there was a reason why I started off that way. Um, first of all, talking about this subject in German doesn't help folks relax and set aside their prejudices. <laughs> I mean, it's not like the Germans have never shown some level of interest in world domination in the past. Um, but the first most important point is most evangelicals, for most evangelicals, a discussion of mere Christendom pretty much sounds like we're speaking in a foreign language. Uh, unfamiliar yes. terms, unfamiliar concepts, and hence there's an immediate I'm just going to put this aside. I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to play with this. I'm not even going to. I'm not even going to think about this. And as I listened to uh, your book uh, last weekend, and is it is it available already right now, or or is it coming out soon, or what? The it's coming out soon. Okay, coming out soon. Uh, yeah, I have a yeah. So I have a pre-publication copy here. And if anyone's wondering how in the world I listened to it, I always convert everything via PDF to MP3, so I can. I listened to it on a 40-mile bike ride uh, last weekend, actually. And um, as, I, as I listened to the book, first of all, I recognized, if you want to comment on this, uh, I recognized a number of the blog and May blog articles that I had uh, listened to uh, in years earlier uh, that mm -hmm. you put together to, to form the book. Um, but at the same time, I just couldn't help but thinking how many 
of the concepts that you're attempting to communicate just they it's it's hard for someone and you and I sort of have a similar background as far as when we were younger so right. you you probably understand this um it sounds like you're speaking a foreign language to an evangelical baptist okay yes it, it really really does so let's start there when you're talking about mere christendom uh for without using german um right <laughs> what, what 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 exactly do you mean so uh first to comment on the foreign language thing uh if if this book had come out 20 years ago uh we would have had the uh language barrier in almost in in uh, an almost perfect state like total total gibberish uh, the people the people would not recognize what I was even trying to get at. the The reason there's an opening, I think, now for an articulation of this, is because uh, we live in clown world. Everything has fallen apart over the last few years, so everybody's having to speak a foreign language all the time, and it's a foreign language that is apparently satanic or demonic. Everybody's lost their minds, and so. Uh, I'm presenting a, f a foreign, alien way of speaking, very different from what uh, people of my generation grew up with in the 50s and 60s. Very, you know, totally different. But I think that there may be a receptivity to it because people are now seeing that we're going to be speaking a foreign language one way or the other. Um, maybe we should be speaking the one that is friends with God <laughs> as opposed to the one... Uh, as opposed to the foreign language that is at war with God. Right. So what I mean, what I mean by mere Christendom is, uh, I believe secularism is bankrupt. Secularism is a failed experiment. Uh, you cannot have a naked public square for long. If you remove all the um, vestiges of the former Christendom from the public square, you don't get a neutral public square you get a room swept and garnished, ready for the the seven demons worse than uh, worse than the one that was cast out to come flooding back in, and that's precisely the moment we're in. How is it? How is it that the public square is filling up with demonism, and people don't have a First Amendment separation of church and state problem with that? They they don't. If it's the Church of Satan. They don't have they don't have the same problems, and so I, I'm wanting to tell Christians you are being played a con is being run, and we are now at stage two of this strategy, where they're it's a bait and switch sort of thing, where they're told, hey let's just have a neutral public square, uh, the government is officially agnostic, they just call balls and strikes that's all they're going to do. And everybody gets to operate on the same level playing field. Well, we've seen what a farce that is. That's simply not true. And so consequently, I'm, I'm wanting to push back and say, well, let's go back to fundamental principles. Let's go back to the basic uh, bottom line issue. And that is, uh, as, as Dylan put it, you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And... And we've tried to pretend for many years that we we don't have to serve anybody, and it's simply not true. Okay, um, 
Now, that argument's being made, um, and in fact, at some point, if I forget, because once you get past a certain point in age, as we both know, things just go flitting off into the sunset. Uh, If I forget, we need to have some discussion of how mere Christendom and Christian nationalism interface, um, as well as, from my perspective, how to distinguish between medieval and reformational sacralism and mere Christendom as you are presenting it in your book. Uh, I think those okay. are those are both really important issues. But uh, I think for most people, though, um, especially from our background, um, Christendom has a negative connotation to it that's immediately connected with some form of Catholicism, uh, more more specifically Roman Catholicism. Um, I know that's how I heard it being used as as I was in independent fundamentalist Baptist circles as a as a as a young person. It was never really used in a positive way. You're yeah. using it in a positive way, and in fact, you're talking about Christendom 2.0. So that leads that's right. o- opening lots of doors there. What was Christendom 1.0? And what makes 2.0 better than 1.0? All right. Wonderful question. So Christendom 1.0, I would say, uh, would uh, date from the conversion of Constantine and his, um, and his at the point where he makes the, the Christian faith the religion of the empire. Um, down, th- down through uh, the uh, near the end of the 19th century, even the beginning of the 20th, Century, um, there was a there was a Supreme Court decision in 1892, um, a wonderfully named court case called Holy Trinity versus the United States. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> but in this in this Supreme Court decision in 1892, the Supreme Court of the United States decided definitively that we are a Christian nation. Okay. That they just said slam dunk. Everybody knows this. Uh, it's not, it's beyond dispute. This is our laws, our customs, our history, everything. We're a Christian nation, and that was in 1892. And the thing was uh, just to set this up. There there was a law. Congress had passed a law banning the importation of um, low skilled workers, and big corporations were paying the passage of these low skilled workers to get them to work on their projects, and then they would just turn them loose in the country having uh, come over this way. Congress passed a law against that. Well, then there was a church, Holy Trinity Church, that called a British minister, and they paid his passage to come over to, to take the, uh, uh, the position and technically violated the law. So the Supreme Court, in this decision, uh, weighed the, that particular case on the merits and did a good job, a lot of common sense, not what you expect to see in a Supreme Court decision, but lots of common sense. But it was 1892. But then the Supreme Court, in this majority opinion, said, and while we're on the subject, let us tell you how ridiculous this whole thing is because we are a Christian nation. And they go back to the Mayflower Compact. They go back to the original charters of the colonies. They go back to the fundamental orders of Connecticut and stoutly affirm that the United States is a Christian nation. Now, in 1893 or 1894, right after that, it wasn't the Handmaid's Tale. It wasn't a theofascist dictatorship in 1894. 
after they, they determined we were a Christian nation. So I would say down through the bulk of the 19th century, even though secularist currents were, were operating from the Enlightenment on, that's, that's when uh, I would say Christendom uh, was a, a thing. And I think Christendom as a uh, living reality was probably obliterated by the First World War. That a lot of people were disillusioned and so forth. So that's the first Christendom. And a lot of what you mentioned, these, this, the sacramentalism and the, the uh, superstitions and problems with Roman Catholicism, were all woven into the texture of this. But the Reformation happened while Christendom was still a, an ongoing thing, and the Reformers uh, were, many of them, establishmentarians, where they, they believed in an established state church. The Puritans were the ones who wanted to purify the state church of all of its popish influences. So um, one, of the <clears throat> one of the things that is important for people in, uh, to understand in talking to folks like me is if you ask me where was my church before the Reformation, okay? Where was my church before the Reformation? If I'm talking, debating with a Roman Catholic, I would say, well, where was your face before you washed it? Okay, so <laughs> Christendom 1.0 had a lot of problems in it. Okay, lots of problems. Let's just take a glaring, uh, the worst one would be probably the Spanish Inquisition. That's a glaring problem in Christendom 1.0. But with all the problems... Christendom 1.0 was way better than what was going before, paganism 3.0. So it was not a bad thing that Constantine uh, put a halt to all the public pagan sacrifices. That wasn't a bad thing. That was a good thing. It wasn't a bad thing that they stopped throwing Christians to the lions. That wasn't a bad thing. But there's a good, better, best issue here. There were a lot of mistakes that Christendom 1.0 made, and I would want Christendom 2.0 to acknowledge those mistakes to, and re- repent of the sins that were involved and uh, make, a, make adjustments and corrections so that Christendom 2.0 doesn't fall into the same, uh, won't fall into the same abuses. Okay, so Christendom 2.0, uh, if I'm reading the book correctly and understanding listening to you for a number of years, um, there's a, there has to be some kind of objective definition so that you know what Christendom is. Um, but one of the problems, obviously, with Christendom 1.0 is that you had very, you had a real wide variety of dogmas and beliefs that had to be confessed, or you could end up uh, lighting up the night sky with your own fire uh, type right. of a situation happened a lot. Um, so you speak of the Apostles' Creed or something along those lines as a uh, a baseline of what would be required to define or to participate in, or what, what language would you use uh, to, uh, to make the differentiation between 1.0 and 2.0 at that point? Yeah, so um, one of the problems with 1.0 is that uh, people would use, when they got a hold of the apparatus of the state, they would, um, they would impose what we would call denominational distinctives. 
So uh, in Europe, after the Reformation, you had Lutheran states, and you had Reformed states, and you had Roman Catholic states. So uh, that uh, it would be like um, uh, it would be like Massachusetts being congregational, and uh, Virginia being Anglican, which when the Constitution was adopted, nine of the 13 colonies had an official relationship with some denomination or other. Now, I believe that a, uh, and this is a place where we have to be precise, because I believe that there needs to be a separation of church and state, because the church and the state are separate institutions. They're separate governments, and I think that they need to be kept distinct and not blurred. Um, in the Roman Catholic system, the, the church was over the state. In the Erastian systems, the state was over the church. In the Kuyperian system, which is what I'm advocating, you have distinct spheres of authority established directly by God that have to relate to each other in some way. Uh, they, they've got to be able to talk to each other, but one's not in charge of the other. The state's not in charge of word and sacrament, and the church is not in charge of declaring war. All right, they, they've, got, they've got distinct responsibilities. So uh, the, the main problem uh, in Christendom 1.0 is that people saw political power as the way of imposing their distinctive doctrinal views down to the 10th decimal point, right? And, and instead of uh, saying, as the, West, as, the, as the American Westminster Confession of Faith says, adopted in 1789, is that uh, the, the magistrate should make no distinction between churches of our common Lord. Okay, that's the, uh, that's the way they approach it. They say that the state will stay out of denominational differences, now, at some point, someone's going to say, so is Islam a denominational difference or a different religion? And that's why, and this shows you that the state cannot be religiously neutral, but they can be religiously neutral when it comes to Baptists and Presbyterians and Anglicans. They, they, can't, they can stay out of that sort of thing. Or Mormons, <laughs> that, yeah. that that gets even a little bit more uh, into that into that area. So, okay. Uh, by the way, uh, church history professor over here just you know, wants to point out that it was Theodosius about sixty years after Constantine that made it official that the Roman yeah. Empire was a Christian. Uh, place. I've had to argue that before, so I don't want anyone writing in and saying, hey, <laughs> you let Doug get away with that. Is that okay? No, just stop. Um, people well, I come on your, I've come on this program in order to get away with things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. Now you've just started another bunch of conspiracy theories. Oh, good grief. We just can't stop no, this stuff these no, days. Let me, let me tag on. You're exactly right. Constantine made it okay to be a Christian. Right. right. Religio uh, Constantine. Right, and and Lactantius, the early church father, who was the tutor to Constantine's children, wanted to keep it that way. Right, he he wanted to uh, he wanted religious toleration, not a not a religious imposition of religion. Okay, now there has to be a religious imposition of law, but that's different than a religious imposition of thou shalt worship at this temple. Right. Right. 
Yeah, and that ended up. Let's let's be honest. I, I think if we if we look down through history, Constantinianism as it became known, um, it doesn't seem to me, to be honest with you, just for a church, just for a few church history moments here for a second, it almost would appear to me, given the perspective that you've presented about Christendom 1.0, is that it started without an owner's manual. Um, yeah. In correct. other words. You go from because I mean it's there's only twelve years between Constantine ending the persecution against the church in three thirteen uh, with the Edict of Toleration and Council of Nicaea in three twenty five. I mean that's whiplash fast history wise. It's not whiplash fast for us today. <laughs> I right. mean I mean two weeks is enough for for the current generation to go. Oh, let's get rid of that stuff we believe two weeks ago. Uh, but in history that was really 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 fast, which means. There was there was nobody. I mean, three hundred three to three thirteen is the period of the greatest persecution against the church. I mean, it's empire wide. It's kill them all, wipe it out. No one at that time is sitting there going, "Well, hey, you know, once we take over, how are we going to run things? <laughs> what, what's yeah. going to how, how what's this even going to look like?" They're not even thinking along those lines, and so Correct. it gets it, there's some issues at the beginning. Um, that I think end up having a lot of rever reverberations down through through history. And and the same thing happened, I think this happened at two great periods in history. One was uh, where Christians found themselves running the show before they were even a little bit prepared right. to, to do so. They were just sort of thrown in the deep end of the pool. The era of Constantine and following was one such era, and the Puritan Revolution in England was another. And so what, what happened, the Puritans found themselves with the keys to the castle uh, long before they had all the details worked out. How, how are we going to govern? But even so, right, even so, even though that we weren't ready for prime time, either time, we enjoy many great blessings today because of those uh, revolutions, because of those... Um, those great episodes, the conversion of the empire, and then the Puritan Revolution and the establishment of the Magisterial Reformation as a model for our laws and customs and, and so on. The other thing I want to say is that if you take the worst excesses of Christendom 1.0, something like the Spanish Inquisition, which over the course of a few centuries executed a few thousand people, okay, really bad uh, bad look, bad practice, evil, bad, nothing, uh, nothing good about it, right? Um, so you you look at that and you say, okay, that death toll is Planned Parenthood on a slow afternoon. Okay, so what are we comparing it to? So when when we say, are we getting is are things progressing? Are we getting better or getting worse? I I would submit that we are getting worse. It used to be. Uh, it used to be in the ant antebellum South, you could buy and sell blacks, okay? Uh, today, you can buy and sell blacks provided you've chopped them up into pieces first, right? And Congress subsidizes the people who are doing that. And the person who revealed that they are doing that is the one currently today being prosecuted, Okay, and it, I, I believe in the judgment, the slave owners, the slave traders of old Charleston will rise up and condemn us because not only do we do that, not only are we far worse than they are, but we do it with a sense of high virtue. 
We, th- we think that we're being constitutional, enlightened, and secular, and progressive. Look, you're chopping up black babies and selling the pieces. Just, justify that. Right, right, exactly. Okay, there's so many, there's so many uh, questions and issues that, that need to be dealt with in, in so little time, but let me, uh, let me introduce a term that is not normally a part of this, but again, um, in 2017, I had just the awesome opportunity uh, about a month before the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation to lead a tour uh, in Germany where we visited um, Eisleben and Frankfurt and Weimar and all these various places, and of course, Wittenberg and, and everything else. In fact, uh, I don't know if you're, I've even mentioned ever mentioned this to you, I had the opportunity of preaching in the castle church in Wittenberg from Luther's pulpit. <laughs> and uh-huh. um, I only know of a few evangelicals that have been allowed to do that, so I decided I needed to actually preach a sermon uh, for, and during which I actually quoted Martin Luther. Now I had to, because if you've, if you've ever been there, you know Luther is buried directly underneath where that pulpit is. Uh-huh. And in fact, uh, we had a little bit of a uh, sound in the sound system when I first started preaching, and I said after I got done, I said that was Luther spinning in his grave because a Baptist was <laughs> preaching from his pulpit. Um, but uh, but uh, I actually quoted Luther, and that made a lot of the people who were walking through the back of the church, visitors, uh, tourists, stop and sit down and listen, because they were hearing English, most of them understand English, but then someone trying to do German at the same time did attract people, and it's on it's on uh, YouTube. I'll, I'll send you the link if you'd ever be interested in, in seeing yeah. uh, what it did because it was it was a lifetime. That's a that's a bucket list type thing. Anyways, we 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 got the chance to go there, and one of the the first night when we were in Berlin, I mentioned to my group. I said, "Now I realize that many of these these men would not extend the right hand of fellowship to me. Many of the men we're going to be talking about would actually have had me." Uh, kicked out of their towns, territories, or worse, possibly even uh, tied to a rope and drowned in a river in Zurich um, type of type of situation. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were were shocked. And in fact, the people who ran the tour sort of stopped me afterwards, and they said, "We've had a lot of people do these tours and big names in church history with big, big, big ministries." They said, "No one has ever talked about that before." I'm like, if you don't talk about that, you're giving a caricature of the Reformation, right. not the reality of the Reformation. Correct. And so all through the trip, I was talking about sacralism. Now, I understand sacralism. I would define sacralism as the blurring or the getting rid of that recognition of the different spheres of sovereignty between the church and the state. Now, as you well know, when the when the church would turn a heretic over to the state, they would sort of like wash their hands, like oh, that's all we're doing. We're not we're not mm-hmm. doing anything more. Though, kind of like Pilate, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but everybody knew what that was going to result in. So it was a there was almost a tacit recognition, even upon the church's part at that time, that there needed to be that distinction. But it was gone. It, it, it was no longer there. And of course, that then led into the reality of the fact that Luther and Zwingli are still sacralists, and Calvin inherits that, though he begins to disassemble it, maybe not purposefully, 
in the institutes, mm-hmm. he's still a part of that at, at, at that very early point. Um, when we talk about sacralism, um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I had the opportunity. We went to the uh, to the Weimar Castle, where, of course, Junker Jorg and the translation of the of the New Testament into German and and all the rest of that stuff. And it's an incredible place to visit. It was it was really wonderful. But while we were there, we visited the cell in which Fritz Erba, an Anabaptist, was kept. And it's it's in one of the towers. Um, I've got a four minute video, and I, and and I'll send you the link to that one too. We we record a four minute video in this tiny little room. We can only get about a dozen people in there, and we're looking down through the the hole. Could not have been any bigger than this. Just barely get a person through it. You would be tied up and dropped into this forty foot hole. There are no windows. There are no doors down there. There's no light. You are completely alone in the middle of this tower. And Fritz Erba was imprisoned there for seven years. Now, at first, they would have Lutheran pastors come because he wouldn't have his children baptized. And because he read Luther's New Testament, which Luther translated less than 100 meters away. And mm-hmm. so there he is, and you'd have Lutheran pastors sit at the, at the hole up there where the food came down and so on and so forth and preach to him about baptism. Not highly effective, but that's, that's what they did. Right. He was down there for seven years before he died. Seven years. Mm-hmm. There's there's no heat. There's no cooling. There's 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 nothing. You're in you're in blackness. It's I, I don't know how anyone. And I said at the time, how many of us would maintain our our position on baptism for more than a week down there, let alone right. seven years? Okay. Now Luther knew he was there. Luther knew he was in a hole less than 100 meters from where he translated the New Testament. But Luther was so afraid of anarchy and so afraid of Christendom, that was a term they used, um, breaking down, that he supported the imprisonment of Fritz Erba. Now, this was a Lutheran state. And as you, I'm sure you know, um, well, maybe you were Southern Baptist, right, initially? Yeah. Uh Okay. And... uh, a lot of Baptists don't know much about their own Baptist martyrology. The martyrs that have, were, were killed, for example, in 1611, a Baptist was burned in, in, uh, in London, which I've always really thought was funny in light of King James Onlyism. But anyway, uh, there were lots of Baptist martyrs in Reformed countries, in the Netherlands, for example. Um, mm-hmm. One famous story of a man who they, they put a tongue clip on his tongue so he could not witness as he was burned. And they they pulled the tongue clip out of the ashes, and it's been passed down through families ever ever since then. So there's sacralism led to um, a lot a lot of bloodshed and imprisonment and and things like that. So, so help a as a as a former Baptist yourself, okay? Yeah. Um, how do we avoid the conversion of Christendom 2.0? into sacralism 2.0 okay so um help a baptist out is what you're saying (laughs) so you just had to go there didn't you (laughs) yeah so uh let me give you two things i'd refer back to my earlier question uh where was your church before the reformation i would answer where was your face before you washed it 
an evangelical Baptist would say, where was your church before uh, the Reformation? He would say, hiding from you guys mostly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, in caves and in forests, and so so it's the trail of the trail of blood that goes ba- uh, that goes back, kind of, kind right. of. <laughs> uh, yeah, because you're you're moving into an area where there's not a lot of documents, uh, you know. Uh, so the that fellow down in the hole in the castle was not writing uh, history. No. He, he was, right? So he's not in a position to do that. But there, there, is, there are two different views of where your church was before the Reformation, and I believe that both have something, have, both have substance, both have merit, okay? Now, the second part of the, the question is, how, how do you uh, reassure someone who's nervous about church-state Church and state becoming too cozy, um, because that be- becomes a, a, an aid or an excuse for this kind of persecution. Well, I would say here's a here's a simple way to analyze it. Uh, when we look at this thing, where Martin Luther was aware that that guy was down in the hole, okay, and we say, what was Luther thinking? What was he? What did he think about it? So I would say, let's go higher. Let's say, what did Jesus think about it? Okay, what does Jesus what does Jesus think about that sort of thing? And whatever Jesus thinks, that's what we ought to do. If Jesus wants us to pull him out of the hole, then we should put him, pull him out of the hole. If we say that Jesus doesn't care because separation of church and state, remember, we don't we don't want people appealing to what Jesus wants, right? Because we believe in ch- separation of church and state. Well, then leave him in the hole. There's nothing wrong with leaving. If Jesus doesn't care, if we leave him down in that dungeon, then why should we care? If Jesus cares whether or not we leave him down in that hole for, for the, because of his religious conviction on baptism, if Jesus has an opinion, we should find out what that is and implement it. But as soon as you're implementing anything because of what Jesus thinks, you're in a theocracy. That, that, that's true, but Luther was convinced that people like you know, when, when the Zwickau prophets first came to Wittenberg, he's sort of open to them, uh, but eventually, yeah, no no way. And as far as uh, Erba is concerned, he sees Fritz Erba as a tremendous threat to Christendom because he was he was he was imprisoned elsewhere at first, and he had a cell window, and he would preach out of his cell window. To the people of the town, he was getting converts, and so that's why he was dragged up to the castle and chucked in that hole. But right. Luther is convinced that Jesus wants Fritz Erba in the hole because Christendom is Jesus's Christendom, and right. if Fritz Erba destroys Jesus's Christendom, then he's hurting Jesus. Right? right. I, 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 you're exactly right. Uh, Luther once said of the Zwickau prophets. That he didn't care if they'd swallowed the Holy Ghost feathers and all, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so so uh, Luther was kind of that kind of pithy uh, guy. But when we're looking at this, when Luther says, "Well, I'm doing what Jesus wants me to do," we are faced with we are faced with a monumental choice. We can't say, "Oh, well, as long as follow your heart, Luther." What we have to do is say, no, that's right, or no, that's wrong. Yes, that's right, or no, that's wrong. If we say, no, you're wrong, Luther, we have to be good students of Luther and appeal to the Word in order to make our case. 
okay? This kind of thing displeases Christ, right? This sort of thing displeases Christ. Now, here, here's the, the tricky part, is that you've got uh, some of these martyrs you're talking about on the Baptist side are what we would call conscientious evangelical Baptists. They're, they're just good Christian folks. Some of them, like in Munster, in, were... <laughs> were demented you know oh they were goodness. just they were off the cha- they were off the chain the most so fascinating ma- story in all of church history there is nothing that can even come close to it and i don't know why there has not been a major motion picture made right. of the story of munster cuz they wouldn't have to make anything up to make right. it the most people sitting there going no that could not have happened oh yes it did poison shirts yep it happened it was there yeah. Um, so right. I'm saying, I say to, how about Canon or Lure or somebody like that? I, we need a monster movie. That's just not a monster movie, a monster <laughs> yeah, movie. A monster. I really. Yeah. So when, so one of the things that we have to recognize is because, the, and this is one of the vulnerabilities of Christendom, is that uh, because you've got an established relationship between church and state, and you've got these things uh, worked out, there are occasions where a doctrinal innovation is not just something that might cause you to plant a new church on the other side of town. A doctrinal innovation can be plausibly accused of fomenting sedition. Right. R- right. So that's what happened with Ann Hutchinson um, here in the colonies. So Ann Hutchinson is starting to teach certain uh, doctrines that could plausibly get the Massachusetts Bay Charter revoked by the king and then you really are in a a, a mess. So it, are you, if you're the if you're the sheriff, and someone says, "Hey, so and so is leading a Bible study. He's got a godly family, godly home, and he's persuading people that infant baptism is not the way." That's one situation. And then another situation: you're the sheriff, and and someone tells you, "Hey, the Anabaptists are running naked through Safeway again." Um, <laughs> uh, if if he if he goes and rounds those guys up, that's not religious persecution, you know. And so you've got lots of blurry lines. A bunch of this is like a watercolor left out in the rain. But the bottom line is we can't make more. If if basically if Christ has no opinions about what we do politically, then it doesn't matter what we do politically. Mm-hmm. If he does have opinions, we should find out what those are. And do them. So, so and the, fi- and, but in finding out how, what those are, let's use the most glaring example that we neither one of us have touched on yet because we're tired of having to deal with it. When um, Servetus escaped the Inquisition, yeah. goes to Geneva, I mean, makes a beeline for Geneva, uh, he wants to take on Calvin. Um, when the council determined that he had to be executed. Um, They sent letters to the other Swiss cantons, and those other cantons then talked with Geneva as to what needed to be done, and they recognized, hey, if the Roman Catholics were about to burn this guy and we don't, this does not look good at all. So the point Mm -hmm. is, here you had multiple ministers, multiple cities, um, where the Word of God had been being preached with clarity and force for at least 20 years now, um, maybe mm-hmm. someplace 15, but it's it's not like it's a brand new thing. And yet there was complete agreement. Um, he needs to be uh, roasted alive. 
And right. so you you have those situations where it's not we're not talking about ignorant people. We're, we're not talking about people who don't have access to the Word of God. And yet they came to conclusions that we today would go, oh, oh, bad, bad move. And right. people look at us and go, yeah, well, you're trying to start the whole thing all over again, aren't you? Right. Um, Except, the, the, but here's the difference. It's sort of like, uh, what, you, what do you get when you cross a Unitarian with a Jehovah's Witness? Well, someone who knocks on your door for no particular reason. <laughs> uh, what do you... The the problem that we have and that ties in with this. Trust me, oh, I'm, we, I'm uh, looking forward to seeing how it does. <laughs> I'm, I really am. We have people in Servetus's position now, but what we people now are being persecuted because of the arbitrary whims of a secular state. Okay, and it's just arbitrary. No particular re, no particular reason. Now, when Servetus was executed. That was a brief ecumenical moment all over Europe. Catholics, Lutherans, Reformed, all cheered. Okay, finally. Okay, finally, we dealt with this pest. And I believe that the devil knew what he was doing. This was this was a trap. <laughs> okay, we. Um, it, it was Servetus going to Cal, uh, going to Geneva in a. Uh, I'm going to triple dog dare you to do something about this, and. Uh, I'll, I'll say two things. I think that the burning of Servetus, the execution of Servetus, was, given the circumstances, understandable, but I believe that they had a responsibility to figure out a way to not step into that trap. Okay, that, uh, and, and that trap, basically, how, how often do you have to have a discussion about politics and Christ before the Salem witch trials or, the, or Servetus, uh, you know, uh, is they're hauled out. Oh yeah. Well, it's hauled it's hauled out wrapped around our neck and what they're doing is they're saying we don't have because Servetus was burned and because of the Salem witch trials, we don't have to do what God says in politics. And I would say let's step back and listen to yourself. If if God doesn't care what we do politically, there's nothing wrong with burning Servetus. Mm -hmm. If God doesn't care what we do politically, there's nothing wrong with burning witches. Or Accused witches. There's nothing. If if there if Christ doesn't care about due process, if he doesn't care about spectral evidence, if he doesn't care about blasphemy uh, laws, if if Christ has nothing to do with this, then the brakes are out, and you're at the top of the grade. You're, this is this is not going to end uh, nicely. And so, consequently, we have this peculiar blind spot where we tell, and this is, shows you the effectiveness of catechism, um, the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition and the burning of Servetus and the Salem witch trials. Nobody ever brings up Stalin. Nobody ever brings up Mao. Nobody brings up Pol Pot. A hundred million victims, a hundred million victims in the 20th century, for, uh, victims of your vaunted secularism. And yet, you still have people, Christians, feeling bad about Servetus? Right. If it is true, and this is, um, I can feel bad about Servetus because I'm a Christian, and I believe that God's law should govern how we, how we behave politically. Right? I believe that. But if, if I accepted their position where God, God has nothing to do with this, then I'd say, okay, great, you'd just let Calvin off the hook. Sure, right. Well, 
now, obviously, one's eschatology, massive, massive impact on all of this as we, yes. as we had the huge um, explosion on Christian nationalism at the beginning of the week. Um, it, it just struck me how many people were reacting, com- not so much as to what was being said or what the issues were, but out of defense of a traditional eschatological understanding. And, and a lot of us just don't recognize the impact that that has on our theology as a whole. And so when I, when I think about situations like what we saw this week, one of the things I said to people was, you know, um, from my perspective, we're not, and this is sort of what, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I really, this is how I understood our last conversation where we talked, well, I'm not sure it was the last one, but when we talked about the Christian nationalism book, mm-hmm. I thought one of the things that, that we agreed on was that all of this, any discussion of, of all of this actually coming into um, existence in reality in the United States or in Western culture as, as a whole would require that major fulfillment of the promises of God in Isaiah 42 and Psalm 2 and 1 Corinthians 15 and this outpouring of the Spirit of God and this third great awakening, fourth great awakening, whatever, to where yeah. there is a, a massive changing of hearts and minds um, so that you have a large portion of the population desirous of following after Christ in the first place. And it seems to me, right. honestly, I, don't, I ain't seeing that right now. In fact, I'm right. seeing doubling down on hatred of God's creation and God's order and everything else all around us. So it seems to me that we, we need to have conversations, yeah, but are we really even at the point where we can discuss details as to how things are going to work out because we're not in a situation where we have this huge outpouring of the spirit of God. I would think that would not only result in tremendous amounts of conversions, but I, would you agree with me that if the spirit's doing that, there's going to be a narrowing um, in the church. Uh, We're going to, there's going to be more harmony. There's going to be more, there's going to be a whole lot less stupidity out there and much right. more focus upon what really defines things. And maybe we'd be in a better position then to get to the details. But it sounds like a lot of people are arguing about the details right now when we're not even close enough to even think about getting there. Right. And part of the reason we need to argue about the details is we have to have some sort of framework for what we say no to now. It's not like we're, not like we're uh, shuttled off to an academic seminar where we can have a discussion uh, and and pursue the argument wherever it leads. We're doing this in a moment where the government is locking us down and demanding that we take the vaccine and demand, you know, there are all sorts of things that are happening and objects whiz, whizzing by our heads. And people are saying, "What? Uh, wh- I want to say no, but I need a framework for saying no. I, I need to understand the map and I need an X on the map that says you are here. And this is where we want to go. Now, I, I do believe that we ha- when we talk about Christian nationalism, which is the unit nation by nation, tribe by tribe, or mere Christendom is what happens when you get a cluster of them. 
Right? So if you have one Christian nation, you've got a Christian nation and Christian nationalism. When you get 10 of them, what is the relationship of these to one another? That would be mere Christendom. So basically, so nationalism is a one-by-one thing. Uh, Christendom is zoom out. Zoom out and look at the relationship between these nations. I need to know that that's where I'm going 700 years from now, so I know how to behave now. But the danger of all eschatological positions, and the post-mill guys are not excluded from this, is that of an over-realized eschatology, where you have certain eschatological convictions and you think that it's all coming down in the next six months. So if you're pre-mill, you think that the rapture is going to happen. If you're a-mill, you think things just fall apart all by themselves all the time. If you're post-mill, you think everything's going to come to a head in your lifetime. Well, it may not. We, uh, future school children may look back on us as part of the early church, right? And, and, and as part of the early church, uh, it's, part of the, it's the immature church. So I would say that the, the Reformation was a glorious Reformation and movement of God, and they got so many things right. The baby was born healthy, but the baby was still a baby, Right. There was still there were still immature there were still immaturities there were things they had to work through things they had to work out and uh, the same thing I I think happened with the Christian Church uh, during the era of Constantine as well we it was this was good altogether good way better than what went before but still we need to grow up oh yeah and we need we need to grow up in our doctrine we need to pursue the ramifications we need to study church history and see how that was a mistake. Let's not do that again. We need, we need church historians to help us view the game film so that we don't make the same mistakes next time. Yeah, and when I was talking about details, I'm talking more about, uh, I've, I've seen people raising questions about, well, what are you going to do about, um, you know, and it even came up in the book, Baptists and Presbyterians and stuff like that. And 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 I'm I'm just sort of like, look, those are, those are the details that we can get to as we get closer, but it's the big picture. It's the, how do you lay the foundations now for what's going to be 700 years down the road? And there's, honestly, um, I do know how technically my amillennial, my positive amillennial friends could think about 700 years down the road. But honestly, in my experience, the only people thinking 700 years down the road are postmillennialists. Mm-hmm. Um, because right. I, I, I think that's just the only framework that really makes any sense to even be thinking in, in that kind of, of time sure. frame. And it just seems to me that if there is going to be, uh, if the son's going to ask for the nations as his inheritance and God, the father has the power to do that and brings it about, that it would seem like when we get to the point of dealing with all those difficult, challenging details, that there's going to be mm-hmm. a whole lot more unanimity uh, and a whole lot more unity of faith at that point. Right now, we can't we can't have a meaningful discussion on Twitter without everybody getting angry and starting to throw fits. Uh, right. I just, it doesn't seem to me like we're quite in the position to be able to be uh, making those final decisions. Yes, maturity is the word that does not come to mind. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, not <laughs> right. No, sadly, um, I, I love Twitter. Because I've been able to communicate with people and communicate things to a wider audience than I could in almost any other context. But even yesterday, uh, I did a dividing line yesterday where I, ha- I talked about transgenderism. And mm-hmm. after we posted it on YouTube, I sort of looked at Rich. I'm sort of like, 
you posted that to YouTube? <laughs> <laughs> do you, are, do you want us to get? Uh, you know, we've already got one strike. Uh, you yeah. know, our, I, and we pulled it. We eventually pulled it. We put it on our. We we use Odyssey as our, our our primary spot right now. But we pulled it because they are trying to silence us, and we all know they're trying right. to silence us. That's where we are right now. That's the situation we're right. facing. It's more important to be investing into our grandchildren, our great grandchildren, and our great great grandchildren to keep going the right direction. Than it is to be answering a lot of the questions that are are really just hidden objections, and we're not really in a position to be answering them right now, anyways. Right, and I, I, the thing I want to keep coming back to and encouraging Christians to think through is neutrality is a myth. Neutrality is a lie. You you can't have it. So if you see something bad, and you in the public square, and you think that Jesus thinks it's bad. And you can prove from the Bible that you think Jesus thinks it's bad, then you should be willing to go there and say, "Thus saith the Lord." <laughs> this is this is bad. Um, and if you if you don't say that, if you don't appeal to the the Word of God, you as a Christian have nowhere to stand. You you're just a you're just another pressure group. You're just, and this is why evangelicals have turned into a lobbying group. You know that we have a lot of votes. You should listen to us, but that puts us on the same level as big tobacco or the NRA or the environmentalists. I don't want the church to speak as a lobbying group. No, no. I, I, I want, want the, the church, church to speak as the very oracles of God. I want John the Baptist to be able to say to Herod, "It's not lawful for you to have her." Right. Right. Okay. Now, if if uh, and I actually saw back in the day uh, a, fa a famous. This is decades ago, but a famous premillennial teacher saying that John the Baptist got out of his lane when he rebuked Herod like that, and and it was a, he cut a promising ministry short uh, because he got involved in politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something tells no. me it, it really does help to believe that there's something called the decree of God, and uh, yes. that he's he's actually accomplishing his purposes. So, well, I appreciate all that, Doug, and I hope everybody else does too. Um, it's uh, it's going to be challenging for people to to read mere Christendom. Um, now, I, I just really briefly because we really are out of time. Um, you uh, mentioned at the beginning that you had you had some help with this book, didn't you? Yes, I had some help with this book. So over the years, I I um, wrote lots of blog posts on mere Christendom, and a theme started to take place, to take shape. And so I asked my grandson, uh, Knox Merkel, to go through this slag heap of words and pull out um, usable pieces and arrange them in a, in a recognizable order, and he did a fine job of, of that. Well, uh, I know uh, my, my oldest is, uh, grandchild is only 13, so we're not quite to that point yet, but I know that uh, if any of my grandchildren were involved in helping me to get something published, I would want to... Uh, very uh, proudly uh, make that known. So I wanted to give you that yeah. opportunity to do that. So it is yeah. it is wonderful to see that. I was out. I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, I have an awesome picture of uh, my uh, two granddaughters. Two of my granddaughters. Uh, we were out at the Mormon Easter pageant, uh, passing out tracts and witnessing to people. And last year, I had seen a picture of my daughter Clement, my granddaughter Clementine witnessing to a police officer out there. And I was up in Utah actually doing ministry amongst the Mormons when I saw this. And I ran the numbers, and Doug, you'll appreciate this. 
I ran the numbers and realized she was only 12 years younger than I was the first time I did that. That's how long we've mm-hmm. been going out there and ministering to, to the Mormons. And to see that faithfulness going generation to generation is, um, is really exciting. It's, uh, it's, it's beautiful. It's, That's the way it should. It's glorious. It is. It glorious. is. It really is. Yeah. All right, sir. Well, thank you very, very much for that conversation. Uh, I'm, the book will probably be out within a, would you imagine, a couple of weeks? weeks. Okay, yeah. a couple weeks, and uh, it's called Mere Christendom, Douglas Wilson, Canon Press. Thank you, sir. Next time in German, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> I can get by. <laughs> Anglo-Saxon is what German would sound like if German sounded good. I'll <laughs> <laughs> Peter Zayn. <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to pre-order Pastor Wilson's book, Mere Christendom, now available at ChristIsLord.com.